over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. March 28, 1895, Donald Gray Barnhouse was born. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church for 33 years. In those days, 10th Presbyterian Church was, I don't like to discuss personalities because that's what it is, but if you're, whoever your Bible teacher hero, John MacArthur, John Piper, Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg, whomever you want to throw in the cauldron, Donald Gray Barnhouse was many of them combined in voice and efficacy. He was an early pioneer on radio Bible teaching. And Barnhouse was brilliant. That church was a formidable church. That church would be sort of the, you know, the, the church people looked at in the day what to believe, what to follow, what to trust in, as Barnhouse was an incredible expositor. One of the many things he contributed to publication was a four-volume set on the book of Romans. I didn't bring all four, but this is the first one. There are over 900 pages for uh, the book of Romans, which actually is, is not, that's not too many. But I want to read you the preface of this book and parts of it to give you a picture of not only what the book of Romans is about, but for me, when I, when I read this, I, I taught the book of Romans uh, when I lived in D.C., and um, I read more and studied more than I have ever in my life, even more than graduate school and postgraduate work. It, it, was a, it's, it was a joyful thing. Prior to computers and laptops and having everything electronically, I would photocopy commentaries. And I had a little black folder, a little paper folder. I'd put them in for the week-to-week study. And I had an assistant, and she would help me photocopy and organize, and, and I would have all the bibliography information so I wasn't cited for you know, stealing. And um, I would take these and hole up and read. And it's not, um, I don't mean to say this to inflate or overstate, I would spend 40 hours a week reading up to 500 pages a week of commentary and exposition on this book, and I still felt incapable and an adequate opening it. It is often called Paul's magnum opus for good reason. And um, with that, I want to read you. This is 1952 when this publication came out. It was reprinted in 58, uh, 59. I was two years old when the reprint came out. But he's at the Philadelphia Church, 10th Presbyterian Church, and he's writing about this. He says, uh, it'll be noted in the present volume contains 27 studies on the first chapter of Romans. Um, He continues, uh, this is not a commentary, but more an exposition of the Word of God. Expositions which take their point as a departure of the book of Romans, and they look at the whole of the Bible to bring the correlated truth of the Word to bear line upon line and the words of the epistle. I've spent five or six chapters on a single word in order to bring the whole teaching of the Bible to bear on a particular doctrine. These studies have been prepared for immediate delivery. 
and I was never more than eight or ten studies in advance of the actual moment of broadcast. He's talking about his radio broadcast, sidebar. One of my professors at seminary traveled with Barnhouse when he was a young man. And if you remember train travel on that day, they would use trunks. They weren't for foot lockers or ornaments for your lamps for staging. They were trunks. And he had three that were just books. And he would take his library, part of his library, with him as he traveled around the country, primarily by train. Um, my professor said he would sit in his berth with books everywhere, notepads, reading and taking notes the entire time he was on the train. With very little interaction with people. Quite an irascible character. But he says, I've got eight or ten in advance before I go on the radio. He continues, um, only 20 or 30 reference books with me. He considered that a limitation. I understand that. I've been forced by this fact to rely much on the Word of God itself. In all cases, I've read 30 to 40 leading commentaries, and those from the Reformation period through the Puritans, modern commentaries, including those of unbelievers. You would be perhaps surprised how many unbelievers write books about Paul's book, letter called the Romans to the Romans. Uh, in many cases, however, I never had more than a worksheet and a passage and some 20 or 30 translations in English, French, German, Greek, New Testament, Strong's. On, uh, so think about that. He's taken these language tools with him, a copy of the Greek New Testament, French New Testament, etc. So you get an idea this guy's a little bit on the smart side of the scale. He got some criticism from a publisher. It was called the English Weekly. The reviewer noted that the author in the preface had not edited the volume from time to time, and the various chapters were no more than a public speech. The reviewer implied, nay, he flatly stated the author should have more respect for his reading public than to treat them so shabbily. In other words, you know, clean up your editing before you publish this stuff, Barnhouse. I must state in my defense of my following this procedure that if I had been obliged to spend more time to prepare these studies before the print, they would have not appeared at all. Under a monthly drive, I am compelled to complete four studies a week, edit an entire edition of Eternity. Eternity was a real Christian magazine, sorry. Uh, It was published that talked about real articles and real issues in the Bible, and the Christian magazines are hard to come by today. Um, He continues, I also prepared eight fresh messages for my Sunday pulpit work, and I carried on a very voluminous correspondence in addition to traveling tens of thousands of miles every year, preaching approximately 400 times a year. This guy didn't recycle. And as my professor said, he wrote everything new on those trains with those books. The spirit might be willing, but the flesh simply cannot work more than 16 hours a day without taking a break. And then he goes on to talk about being indebted to the people that took what he wrote. So Barnhouse, uh, take, take your pick of whoever, whomever you want, uh, of your hero, preacher, teacher, expositor, author, whomever he or she may be, and, and personify Barnhouse is a, a tier above them. He was a brilliant expositor, a brilliant writer, and an incredible and irascible man. Um, He said in other publications, if he had one life to give, he would give it to the book of Romans. So that is 
I want to give you a, a little snapshot of one person's perspective whom I greatly appreciate and respect and his assessment on this letter we call the letter of Paul to the Romans. Um, we've gone from these gospels, the person and work of Jesus Christ. We've gone into briefly the story of Acts, the continuation of what happens after Pentecost, the birth of the church, God empowering his disciples to do the work of Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the world. We talked about that being a geographic and a theological outline because the gospel is going to go from the Jewish audience to a mixed Jew and Samarian and a little bit of Gentile to a Gentile world. The book is going to be primarily the last part of the book about Paul's journeys. So now we're, we're sort of going back, if you will, and we're looking at some of the stories that we read about from the missionary journeys that Paul had, but what is he doing when he goes to Rome and how he writes these particular letters? Uh, second to Luke and Acts, as we've talked about many times, Paul is the most prolific author. There's more content in Luke and Acts, but there's much more uh, coverage, if you will, in what Paul's writing as he writes to these different churches and individuals. There are 13 letters from the apostle. Nine are written to groups, and four are written to individuals. Nine are written to churches in Rome, in Corinth, and Ephesus. Uh, four are written to individuals, for example, Timothy and Titus. So we, we need to take that in mind. He is a Jewish rabbi. He's a legal scholar. It's hard for us when we read the law or scribes and Pharisees to understand because those offices don't exist today. Uh, Paul is a Roman citizen. He was born Saul in an area called Tarsus. He went to what we would probably compare to a Jewish Ivy League school, the school of Gamaliel, whether you're a Harvard or Yale or whomever fan you look at, that's the Ivy League tower. Uh, that, that would be where Paul was in the school of Gamaliel. Keep in mind, just like today, uh, schools have departments. Schools were known for certain things. Gamaliel was known for certain things. And to align himself and identify himself with Gamaliel was to say, this is how I was trained. This is what I was taught. Um, combine a religious law degree with a law degree and let's just say apologetics in Judaism. And that is essentially what Paul had amalgamated in his lifetime. It was a high privilege to go to that school to sit under Gamaliel. And don't think of a classroom education. These were entourages. If you've been to Israel, you can still see rabbis walking the old city streets with a little entourage behind them. Those are their disciples. And they meet all day, every day, like a job. They're paid for by the government. And their job is to study rabbinic teaching and become a rabbi uh, in those different pockets, those different groups, S-E-S-C-T, I can't, I can't say that word because it comes out wrong, sects, uh, the sect groups, and there's a lot of them in Judaism. Galatians 1.14, he notes his academic achievement advanced his peers. We would say he was the top of the class. He was the guy that passed the bar the first time that everybody else hates. Um, he is a young religious scholar. He's a self-described and other-described zealot for Judaism. Um, he is in hearty approval of killing Stephen in the book of Acts when Stephen preaches his one and only sermon and he's stoned to death and it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Uh, he's, he's in a way, it's, it's like guarding cloaks. 
So the, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees or scribes who stoned Stephen to death had taken off their outer garment and sort of had a coat rack, and Saul is standing by the coat rack, as it were, watching them kill Stephen, with whom he's an approving. Uh, he acts like a prosecutor. He travels with papers that are authoritative outside of Jerusalem to arrest and bring back to Jerusalem these Jews who have adopted or believed in or are embracing this Jesus. And you got to scratch your head, even if you're a student of history. Why would they care? Why would they care if somebody starts believing something different than they taught? Judaism was a highly protected political religious system. If you didn't agree or you attacked it, it was sedition. It was a crime. There was no freedom of religion. And so the Jews are trying to protect their own turf, if you will, with the zealot named Saul. In hearty approval of killing Stephen, we have, of course, this dramatic story in Acts chapter 9, which I want you to follow as I read. Acts 9, chapter 9, beginning of verse 3. He, Saul, was traveling. It happened that he was approaching Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Saul, said, who are you, Lord? Uh, depending on your English translation, I might say, sir. That's not a bad rendering, actually. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless. Notice this. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So these, they were ear witnesses, not eyewitnesses. They heard it. This is not unusual in the New Testament. Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Uh, students of Scripture have marveled at the logic, the theology, the doctrinal clarity, the emotion, the passion, the way Paul is going to write. And when you look at this, here's a Jew's Jew that is being sent with the authority to arrest people who are believing in this Jesus it would not be unlike being, uh, having a warrant for your arrest and taking you back to Jerusalem to see what would effectively be the religious police of the day, the scribes and Pharisees. And what happens to this Jew's Jew, this man who's got a pedigree unlike anybody, top of his class, think of a religious attorney more than a priest in robes, with the authority to arrest these people and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. John Whitmer, in his uh, commentary, opens in a beautiful way. The letter is a premier example of epistolary, epistolary form of writing. This uh, epistles, writing an epistle. Not only in the Pauline body of material, but in the New Testament also of all ancient literature. It stands first in every list of the Apostle Paul's writing though it was not first in the time of composition. So we, this is the standout book of Paul, but it wasn't the first one he wrote. That's what he's saying. This bears witness to the importance of the work, both in its theme and content. It may also reflect the significance of the location of the letter's first readers, the imperial capital of Rome. Think about going to Washington, D.C. 
He continues, in addition to a possible ties, grows out of the fact that the book of Acts ends with Paul in Rome, so the letter to the Romans follows naturally in the order of the books of our Bible. Uh, Paul's letters are often considered technical and doctrinaire. They're, t- they're hard to read sometimes for a casual reader, but they're a work of art. They're magnificently constructed letters. His writing was extraordinary. He's often considered doctrinaire and too theological. He's about 50-50. If you read Pauline literature carefully, he's about 50 theology and 50 practical application. In fact, uh, we joke when you read Ephesians, it's be, do, be, do, be, do. Not to be, to be, but be, do, be, do, be, do. This is who you are to be, and this is what you do based on who you are. Uh, Paul's literature, uh, literature is remarkable in the way it can go from the theological stratosphere to the most practical shoe leather theology in one fell swoop. We all have known those people that are too brilliant for their own good. They tend to be in universities. They tend to teach esoteric courses. Brilliant men and women. But, you know, they don't understand, you know, some basic things in life. Well, Paul would be a combination of a brilliant man who understood life a shoe-leather theologian who was also an academic. Romans is the most symptomatic of all epistles in the sense that it traces the condemnation of mankind to justification, from sanctification to glorification, the Jews and Gentiles. And um, this depiction of the book of Romans is a magnum opus for many theologians. It covers doctrines of the depravity of man, the sin nature, the price of our redemption, propitiation, justification, righteousness, what it means to be declared righteous, reckoned as righteousness before God. Um, It declares the gospel at all times, at all costs, and in all situations. Well, no sooner than we are... uh, taxed, then we are challenged to read this graduate school kind of book. Um, He gives us what I call a careful biblical theology that is really void in most churches today. It's an intimately personal book, but it's highly doctrinaire. You typically have theoreticians, you know, if you know about think tanks, I've always wanted to have a job at a think tank, just to be paid to think. Never got that job. I'd love to be paid a nice six-figure fat salary with expense accounts and all the technology and have everything on my computer and just think. Sounds like a pretty sweet gig to me. I didn't get that gig. Uh, Paul is this brilliant theological scholar, but he can relate to the commoner. And that's one of the extraordinary things about his life. Um, So you've got this brilliant Jewish legal scholar with an everyman communicator all in one. Uh, As an apologist, he writes of people by name. It's unusual if you think through that. He's not just a pure academic. He knows people by name. In the last chapter of Romans, which is often overlooked by Bible students, there are many individuals. The count is a little bit hard because is he talking about a family group or an individual? Let's just say a round number of 20 He mentions 20-some people, and he says one or two things about them. He knew his people, and they're ensconced forever in the living Word of God. Uh, No fewer than 20 homes and individuals are mentioned by Paul, both from an endearing and encouraging way as well as a rebuking. 
Paul was, is an amazing individual, and he was used mightily by God. We often turn to Bruce Wilkinson and uh, Ken Boa's book, Talk Through the Bible. What they distill is pretty hard to replicate or to invent. Romans, Paul's magnum opus, is placed first among the 13 epistles in the New Testament. While the four Gospels present the words and works of Jesus Christ, Romans explores the significance of his sacrificial death. Using a question-answer format, Paul records the most systematic presentation of the doctrine of doctrine in the Bible. But Romans is more than a book of theology. It is also a book of practical exhortations. The good news of Jesus Christ is more than facts to be believed. It is also a life to be lived. A life of righteousness befitting the person, quote, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 24. This book um, is an amazing study. If you've not studied the book of Romans, one of the hard parts of doing this big book uh, cover to cover series has been, um, I, I want to teach that book. I want you, and I got to keep going. So it's been, it's been a discipline for me personally. It's also been illuminating for me because I've had to ask and answer questions that I've trafficked in for a long time going, if you don't know much about this, what do you need to know? What do you say about the book of Romans, a magnum opus in the New Testament without equal? Um, two quotes that, that put me on my heels. The first one is a rather lengthy quote from Martin Luther, 1522. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. And it is worthy not only of every Christian should know it word for word by heart, <laughs> but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Now, keep in mind, when this is written by Luther, this, uh, uh, this is not, uh, excuse me, um, when this is, yeah, Martin, Martin Luther is still a Catholic priest. Uh, a quick historical lesson. There's one church, not the big Roman Catholic church you might think of today, but there's one church. There was the Catholic church, Catholic meaning universal church. There were certainly emphases different in different parts. And if you're a student of Reformation, you'll get your toes wet with this. But there's one church. Martin Luther is a reformer. We talk about that in hindsight. He was a Catholic priest. He was an academic. He was brilliant. He was a tortured soul. And when Luther is reading the book of Romans, this is what rocks his world. And he begins preaching the gospel. And that goes against the, the grain of what the Catholic church was doing in other parts of the world. And so when you read something like this, um, it's hard because we don't know our history real well. It was all one happy family, basically. Now, there were certainly differences geographically, but Luther is the one who strikes the match on what we will later call the Reformation. Um, now, I read this, and I had to stop. And I'm thinking about, okay, word by word, I know it by heart, occupy himself with it every day. It can never be read or pondered too much. And it's sort of perhaps a 
you know, confession slash identification, how many of us even look at the Bible this carefully? I don't, I, don't, I don't use guilt and shame. I abhor guilt and shame in my own life. I hate it when people try to use it on me. But I'm, I read a comment like this from Martin Luther, and I go, uh, to know it word for word by heart, to occupy himself with it every day, the daily bread for the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And I simply ask you to ask yourself the question, is that remotely true for you? The problem with prosperity, in my estimation, is that we've become comfortable in our own successes, and God is an also-ran. He's rarely first place in our lives. We're friendly, right? We're friends. We can say it. He's rarely. When is he first place? When you have a health problem, a problem with your marriage, a problem with your child, a problem with your job, when you're sued. You know, that's when we get busy with God. And one of my biggest uh, nauseating concerns is when we go through trouble, is that God saying, you need to get back recalibrated with me? doesn't mean the outcome is going to be better. It's just that I think these troubles in life we have are the guardrails of getting back to what's important eternally. And that's hard for all of us, especially when we live in a fairly comfortable, prosperous life. Um, when I read something like this from Luther or other commentaries, I'm, I'm put back on my heels and I think about my life, my hobbies, my interests, my desire, my money, my house, my family, my children, my grandchildren, and I get real smug and I go, am I really as passionate about who this Jesus is as I am about my life working? The step of faith for most of us is if we have this calibrated properly, we will not be worried about the things of the world. Remember the old hymn, the things of the earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I I mean to encourage you, not shame you. When your walk with Christ is intimate, things tend to lessen their grip on you. Broken marriages, broken hearts, children that disappoint us, health issues, financial downturns, loss of employment, etc. Because if I'm zeroed in, if I'm dialed in, if I'm balanced with my walk in intimacy with Jesus Christ, am I better or less equipped to handle the disappointments of a fallen world? You all know this. This is nothing new. The problem is success is seductive. I like it. I like not having a mortgage. I like being free to use our money the way we want. We worked all our married life to get to a point where we were independent, owned our house outright, could give more money away, could be invested in our kids and grandkids. We followed the plan. And believe me, it didn't work because we were smart. It works because the plan works. It's just stewardship. It's being smart, not stupid. And one day you wake up and you go, well, is that all there is? And yeah, you can do more things. I do more things. I love my life at this chapter. Don't hear me wrong. I asked, I wrote it in the margin of my notes, Michael, are you a slave to righteousness or yourself? I'm a slave to self. I like being comfortable. I like eating what I want to eat. I like doing what I and don't hear me saying those things are wrong or bad. I'm not some, you know, esoteric, ascetic person that wants to live out, you know. 
Well, sometimes I am, but uh, be, be that as it may, I mean, that's not my dream in life. I really enjoy the prosperity that Cindy and I, in God's kindness, have been able to manage. I love being able to help people and our kids and do things like this and come and go as we please and not worry about mortgage or can we afford this or can we afford it. It's a wonderful, wonderful posture to be. Am I using it for the glory of Jesus Christ or just for comfort? That's one we all have to wrestle with. Philip Schaff uh, wrote an eight-volume set uh, north of 7,000 pages called The History of the Christian Church. It's not what we would consider completely evangelical, fundamental, Bible-believing, but he's got a lot of gold in this set. He writes of Romans, it is the most remarkable production of the most remarkable man. It is his heart. It contains his theology, theoretical and practical, for which he lived and died. It gives the clearest and fullest exposition of the doctrines of sin and grace and the best possible solution of the universal dominion of sin and death in the universal redemption of the second Adam. It's not the best piece of theology, but it's very well written. It's a magnum opus in many ways. Romans, uh, during this time when it's written, and the audience it's written to uh, comprises um, probably 80, 50. The, the Corinthian church is going to play in soon. But you've got Paul the Apostle struck blind. Three days later, uh, he is, uh, uh, Antipas comes, not Antipas, um, Ananias comes, and he's terrified. That's a wonderful story to read in Acts. Ananias does not want to go see Saul of Tarsus and tell him what's happening. He's terrified. I love at the end, the Lord says, go. <laughs> He's a chosen servant of mine. I can see Ananias' tail tuck going, okay. And he goes to tell Paul what's happening to him. He's Saul at the time. And Saul becomes a force. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. A Jew's Jew, a Jewish scholar, a rabbinic scholar, a lawyer, we would think of him more accurately, who's going to take the gospel to the world. And he's going to have an incredible life story, not one he envisioned. Well, through this, there's so much in the book. And I want to give you some general observations, and I want to try to land our time together on perhaps the most important takeaway from the book of Romans, which I don't know if I can get distill that. Number one, it's hard to miss the primary point of the letter to the believers in Rome is the righteousness of God. Um, in the front page of my Bible, I've got several things written, and that's one of it. This is, some call it the gospelness of righteousness, if you want to call it that, but it's the righteousness of God. Now, there's lots of outlines and observations, and I don't want to tell you any of these is definitive, but my goal in this big book series is to give you something to put your hands on, to grasp these massive things in a way that hopefully will encourage you as you read the Scripture. And so let's look first at these general observations. Uh, chapter 1 to 8 is God's righteousness is revealed. So Paul the Apostle, who is a, a lawyer by training as well as a theological scholar, is going to argue about God is righteous and what that righteousness means. In chapters 9 to 11, he's going to speak of God's righteousness being vindicated. In other words, uh, he's perfect, he's pure in everything he does and says. And uh, those who live apart from that, there will be a vindication. There will be, let's say, a price to pay. And then finally, that we see God's righteousness applied in verses 12 to 16. Now let me just point out, 
Chapters 1 to 11 are pretty doctrinaire and pretty theological. Chapters 12 to 16 are the most shoe-leather, practical, how-to book you'll ever read. So while you've got this theologian, scholar, doctrinaire, teacher, he puts the cookies on the lower shelf. And that's one of the geniuses of a great teacher. You can be a boring scholar, or you can be a scholar who knows how to apply, and the Apostle Paul certainly does. In the same sections, I want you to notice sort of a second tier, and these maybe will help you remember. We've got sin, salvation, and sanctification in the first eight chapters. Let's understand what sin is. Let's understand how we are saved in that sin condition, and then how are we sanctified? What, what difference does it make that you're saved? Is salvation just getting out of jail free? Is salvation just saying, my sins are forgiven, I'm going to go to heaven, now I can live like I want? Too many Christians stop right there. Once saved, always saved is a true theological uh, uh, idiom. It's a terrible theology if you don't understand what that means. Once saved, always saved is a positional declaration of Christ's work for your life and mine. How shall we then live is the ongoing experience, the ongoing experiment. What do I do now that my salvation is secure? And that should be explosive, not passive. It should be exciting, not uh, I'm, I'm saved, I do whatever I want now, I'm going to heaven. Too many Christians in America believe that way. It's in, it's in a ch- the sections of 9 to 11 about sovereignty of God. I remember in college being exposed to chapters 9 to 11, and it was a sinkhole for me. I couldn't get out of it. I was stuck in Romans 9 to 11 for months. I loved it. Still do. And then finally, uh, service. How do we then serve based on these? It's just, these are big handles to give you to think about a book that's very complex, very doctrinaire, but also very practical. Think about some general observations. It's the longest and most theologically detailed work that Paul gives us. Um, students, teachers, ministers, pastors, precept, whatever you are, they return to this book again and again and again and again. I have a friend in one of those aforementioned groups, and they were talking about the Romans and the schedule, and they laughed. Going, How can you do Romans in that amount of time? I said, I don't know. I started preaching it when we lived in Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, and uh, I left at chapter 6 to go to Chicago to a different ministry, and I had uh, some people from the church say, you can't leave, you haven't finished Romans. <laughs> so, well, you have to study it yourself. Um, but I would also add it was perhaps the most rich personal study time of my life was when I was teaching through the book of Romans. Um, some broad-sweeping broad observations. Uh, sin and judgment are big themes. And of course, in our current culture, we're never going to talk about sin, must love, judgment. God, Jesus loves. We're going to talk about love winning. We're going to talk about, you know, God's not going to do those kind of things to people. Well, that's really bad theology because it's people that do things to themselves, not God. Righteousness, a huge theme in the book. Salvation, a clear doctrine, soteriology, is formed in Romans unlike any other book of the Bible. What is faith? Remarkable teachings on faith. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, are a core theme of the book of Romans. The law, and you have to think, this is hard for Western Christians to understand. 
Um, the law was everything to the religious person in the first century. If you were a Jew, the law was more important than we would say the Constitution of the United States. It was the most important thing. Just substitute the word the Bible. That's an easy way for me to understand. When people talk about the law, they're not just talking about Ten Commandments. They're not talking only about the Pentateuch, the corpus that would be known as the Bible early on. They're talking about the Word of God and aligning yourself to the law of God. Um, the Holy Spirit, the role and the status of Israel and other topics. But these are just some of the, the broad sweeping topics theologically. They can be doctrinaire. But why you believe what you believe isn't important. It's critical. Why you believe what you believe isn't a matter of opinion. It's a matter of eternality. And that's what Romans lays out. It is a book about justification by faith. And perhaps that is one of the most important themes as we take away from this book. Paul's going to write a line-by-line defense of man's sinful condition, his helplessness, his hopelessness apart from the work of Jesus Christ, and how dire and desperate our condition might be. His command of the Old Testament Scripture is remarkable because he was a scribe, a Pharisee. He was trained in rabbinics. Um, Romans 3 Verses 10 to 18. These are all citations from the Old Testament. He did not have a Gideon's pocket New Testament. He did not have a smartphone where he could look up these verses. He knew them. He knew them. And these are a host of cross-references, mostly from the Psalms, uh, some from other references. But let me just read And by the way, if you use a New American Standard Bible, whenever it cites the Old Testament, it puts it in all caps so the reader can understand. Some Bibles will indent it differently or choose a different font. It's the way the New American Standard Bible notates something taken from the Old Testament. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Stop for just a second. Think about the altruism of our culture, of people doing good, and ergo they must be Christians. Not what the text says. It's not what the text says. Look at that verse again. There is none who does good, not even one. Verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. When you see any group on any form of media that's yelling and screaming, Think of this passage. I'm guilty of getting animated. I'm guilty of getting emotional and yelling and screaming. But think of this passage. Sometimes the louder we get is evidence of what we don't know. The summary that many Christians know perhaps too well is Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some, not most, all have sinned and fall short 
of the glory of God. And it's a silly illustration, but it's effective for me, and it's effective for kids, and it's effective for your friends. I give you a rock, I take a rock, throw it as far as you can and get to God. You might throw farther than me, I might throw farther than you. We both fall short. None righteous, no, not one. Cindy and I have a, a dear friend, uh, Tim and Darcy Kimmel. We used to speak with them uh, years ago with the Family Life Weekend to Remember Marriage Ministry. And Tim was one of the most incredible, uh, almost a stand-up comedian. And he would tell this story illustrating this passage about uh, good people like Mother Teresa and whatever, and they got to swim the English Channel. And he would just, a very animated story, and he's talking about, you know, people that are swimming so hard to get to their side, and they're all good people, and he goes, here comes Mother Teresa walking on the water. And then he said, but when you get to the shore, everybody sinks. You can throw it farther than me. I can throw the rock farther than you. We both fall short. There's none righteous. No, not one. See, that's not a real, you know, cheery message to give churches these days. It's the truth of the Scripture. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He establishes the helpless condition. And then he says in Romans 6.23, if it wasn't bad enough, let's make it worse. The wages of sin is death. What do you earn? You earn death. You're a sinner by nature. You're born into sin, you and I. We all sin. We all fall short of God's gold standard. The result of that, well, you're going to die. Everybody dies. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This free gift hangs up more people on the planet than any concept in biblical discussions. Every world religious system is built on a doing certain things to get to some place, except biblical Christianity. It is the only, quote, religion, or I would say faith, where you trust someone else to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. It, it, it blows our minds. It ruins our pride. It takes away our own ability. You can't do this. You can never be good enough. The wages of sin is death, and we're all going to get what we earned, death. Because we're sinners, we earn death. But Romans 5.8, marvelous verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Would you read it with me? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How often did we hear, hear this as children that we had to kind of do our part, had to kind of clean up our act? Some of you might have grown up in churches where people walked the aisle and prayed the prayer. And it was not uncommon to metaphorically leave your cigarettes behind, leave your drinking behind, leave your you know, fill in a blank behind, and walk that aisle and pray the prayer. One of the reasons I, I've, I've told you this before, I can't go to those kind of churches, is I'd walk the aisle probably every other week. Because <laughs> I always feel like there's something left undone. But God demonstrated his own love for us, and while we were yet sinners, not when you cleaned up your act. Not when you got a little bit better. Not when you gave more money to some nonprofit. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Um, 
when I finished uh, my last degree many years ago, um, a friend gave me a pen, and it's uh, exactly this pen, but I gave it away to another friend who I thought it would mean more to. But it's the same, just a cross pen. And she had the words, but God, dot, 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 engraved on it in about 1980, I don't know when it was, 85. And um, it was in a reference to this verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners. Not when you were a little better than everybody else. Um, man can do nothing but God. You and I and our efforts are unimportant to God when it comes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're sinners. It's a sad but true commentary. You're all a bunch of sinners. I'm a big fat sinner. And that's where this discussion needs to be ground level. We could not get to him, so he came to us. We couldn't be good enough to do for ourselves what only he could do for us. He came to us in our simple state. He dies in our place on our behalf instead of us. Man's dilemma is he's presented a case closed. And there's something in our being that wants to do something else, to do right, to figure out a different way. Um, and Christ was motivated by his Father's love to die for you and for me. Have you been a Christian long enough to wonder why he loved you? I have. And you know the great answer to that is? No reason we can ever come up with. Because his love is otherworldly, not like human love. Human commerce of love is when you do this and don't do that, and then he loves. Your husband does what you want him to do, you love him. That's not the way God works. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The righteousness of God cannot be appropriated by what we do or don't do. We're never going to have a relationship as vital and growing and meaningful with this God of the universe by what we do until we begin to understand what he has done. He lived, he died, he was buried. That burial confirmed his death. Three days later, he overcomes death, an empty grave, an empty chrysalis of wrappings. He had somehow translated through the grave. The stone is rolled away for our benefit to look in that it's empty. He didn't walk out when they opened the door. He was gone. And the gospel message in the book of Romans is par excellence. This is who he is. And by believing in his name, you're given a gift called eternal life. Romans is perhaps his magnum opus, his doctrinaire, his crescendo on his life. But it should also be that book that draws you back to your sin nature. That he loved you and me when we were quite unlovely. And to fall in love with this person who died in your place, on your behalf, instead of you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. 
In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates. 